All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast, podcast where we talk about movies from that Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight we got a twofer. We're going to be doing two movies for the price of one. It's the same movie title, but uh, one is an original classic and the other is a, uh, I think the consensus is it's a fairly shoddy remake, Robert. It's a disaster on wheels. It's on fire and it's flaming, it's crashing and yeah, it's, it's terrible. I mean, I understand why they changed it. We'll get into that, but man, what a from a libertarian perspective, what a big disappointment. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I might have different opinions. I might have my own thoughts here. <laughs> oh, really? I might. I, I might. wait to hear him. I want to hear this pushback from Daniel on this one. That's gonna be great. That's right. Yeah, we're gonna duke it out, and we're also gonna have a guest uh, who we will introduce on the last night's portion of the show. This is uh, episode one twenty nine of Actual Anarchy, and uh, uh, I guess we'll get in that last night's portion of the show. We'll introduce our guest. Here we okay, go. Let's do it. Okay, let's go. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is episode 72 of the show, and we are going to be talking about The Day the Earth Stood Still, both the original classic version from 1951 and the shoddy remake that the Heinz 57 years later made with Keanu Reeves as Klaatu. And we also have a special guest. He is Dr. Dennis Foster. He was born in the belly of the beast where the first movie takes place, Washington, D.C., but raised mostly in Colorado. He is now a professor at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and he focuses on macroeconomics, money and banking, and public choice theory. Welcome to the show, Dr. Foster. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. It's a real pleasure. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Um, We are a fly-by-night show with very uh, limited uh, educational experience. We kind of make things up as we go, so it'd be really nice to have somebody who knows what they're talking about kind of anchor this <laughs> down for us in, into reality. And uh, Robert, um, uh, did you want to jump in at all? Yeah, I like jumping in. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to say that having now watched these movies, I'm surprised that these aren't more discussed. That I've never heard of these before. Like as libertarian movies, as having interesting things to say, worthy of discussion. They just kind of gotten forgotten. And so I really want to thank our guests for bringing it up and having us do these movies because I think this is going to be a really great episode. I, I've got a lot to say. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it, but if I don't, I want to get to it in KTO because there's a lot here. And I want to I, I want to see if you got anything different going on because, damn it. it. Anyway. Just so much. So much he wants to say right now. So rich and juicy, Daniel. All right. Well, we might have to get into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive for some of it. And that's available for our Patreon supporters. Uh, Dennis Foster is a Patreon supporter of ours, actually. And so you can join him and get that additional content over at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Other things you can do to help the show, and probably the most important thing you can do, is give us uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes and also subscribe to the YouTube channel. 
Uh, those are the biggest things that help get our visibility raised so that more people can uh, get recommended our show and have a listen. So hopefully we can snag a few more peeps. Uh, but with that, uh, we might as well get into this because we have so much content, I think. So there's two movies we're talking about. And the Google description, I will do one and then the other. And then uh, I'll get your reaction, Dennis, and then Roberts. And then we will just kind of meander from there as we are wont to do. So The Day of the Earth is Still, 1951 drama, sci-fi, one hour, 34 minutes, 7.8 on the IMDb, 94% Rotten Tomatoes, and 91% of the Google users like it. The description is when a UFO lands in Washington, D.C., bearing a message for Earth's leaders, all of humanity stands still. Klaatu has come on behalf of alien life who have been watching Cold War-era nuclear proliferation on Earth. But it is Klaatu's soft-spoken robot Gort that presents a more immediate threat to onlookers. A single mother and her son teach the world about peace and tolerance in this moral fable, ousting the tanks and soldiers that greet the aliens' arrival. Came out September 28, 1951. Directors Robert Wise stars Michael Rennie as Klaatu. And uh, the music is uh, also really, really well done in this one. The budget was $1.2 million. And uh, I can move on to the next one if you guys uh, are good with that. Or do you, or do you want to... $1.2 million on the original? Yes. Wow. Okay. But that was back when money... That sounds was... like a lot of money back in the day. 1951 sounds like a ton of cash. And it doesn't look like it showed up on screen. I mean, the effects are... You know, I imagine it was all in the actor salaries and the production, but wow. Well, okay. they, they did a lot of, uh, I mean, when you look at those scenes, they staged a lot of things outside that in, involved a lot of extras. So certainly that would be uh, part of it. I, You know, the, the science fiction aspect is rather minimal in terms of the effects, but yeah, it was a, a big budget uh, picture for its time. Yeah, interesting. And and the, um, the single mother in this, I think uh, Patricia Neal, I guess in an yes. interview later, she was surprised at how this turned out and how well, uh, how good it turned out and also how well received it was because she had, while they were making it, the opinion that, oh, this is just another one of those a bit schlocky sci-fi movies that were kind of being made at the time. And that was a bit, you know, kind of her expectation. And, yeah, that, uh, that kind of is what it looks like. But the script is just so much better. And uh, of course, it all comes together at the end, but it just turns from a kind of schlocky script into, wow, this movie has something to say. Yeah, something. Agree or disagree? You guys got something to say. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's read the next one, and then we'll get into the discussion. So, 2008 version. We've got Keanu Reeves, Neo from The Matrix, playing Klaatu. Uh, 2008 drama, fantasy, one hour, fifty minutes, five point five on the IMDb, twenty one percent Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it a two out of four. However, eighty four percent deserved. Eighty four percent of those Google users like it. Klaatu, played by Keanu Reeves, is an extraterrestrial visitor to planet Earth, and he becomes the herald of upheaval on a global scale. As the world's governments and scientists race to understand what is happening and how to stop it, Dr. Helen Benson, played by Jennifer Connelly, and her stepson, Jaden Smith, come to understand the chilling ramifications behind Klaatu's statement that he is, quote, a friend to the Earth. This came out December 12, 2008. Director Scott Derrickson and the budget... I don't have the budget. I have the box office, $233.1 million. So I would imagine that this was a box office success if measured uh, by how much it took in. But apparently people did not like this movie. Critics hated it. Uh, Dennis, your thoughts on both descriptions and uh, then we'll go to Robert. Uh, yeah, I think uh, they both see, they both come across pretty well. Uh, Gort was not soft-spoken. Isn't that what it said in the first one? Did, the yeah. uh, robot... Uh, yeah, he didn't say anything, so I guess that would be uh, very soft-spoken. Uh, I I can say that 
I did obviously I didn't see the the first movie when it first came out. I was born a few years later than that, but I did see it when I was a kid, and it stuck with me. And I can remember quite vividly when the remake came out. I was very excited to see that, and just totally disappointed. It's just uh, you know one of those things where gosh, they could have done such a great job, and they did just a terrible job. Wow, he throws down the gauntlet immediately, Robert. I was like, me and Dennis are on the same page on this one. I'm curious to know exactly why Dennis is, is if his reasons are the same as mine. Um, I understand why they had to change the story. Uh, the you know the height of the Cold War was just getting started there in '51, and they were everyone was terrified of nuclear holocaust. You had the Russians that were big and bad. They just won World War II. Everybody's super excited. Korean War is getting fired up. But here in 2000, what was it? 2011 was when this one was made, Daniel? 08. 2008. Okay. So that doesn't play as good when the Soviet Union is gone and doesn't exist anymore, right? So they had to change it to humans are bad, environmentalism, humans are killing the earth. And the movie just kind of assumes its premise. Like it doesn't make an argument for it. Doesn't say this is, you know, here's some evidence as to why and how humans are killing the earth. Everyone just flat out agrees. Klaatu says, yeah, you're killing the earth. All the humans are instantly like, oh yeah, we're so terrible. We just kill the earth all the time. We're just, just, we just love killing the earth. We could totally change. Just give us a chance. But when they change it from, from Gort responding to aggression to the entire reason the space cop robots are made in the first one to responding to aggression, like policing aggression, to now we're policing environmental destruction, it totally changes the entire movie. It doesn't make any sense. So the new movie, they're, they they never respond to human beings destroying the earth. Like Gort still responds to violence in the second movie. Why? Why doesn't he respond to environmental destruction? You should have seen somebody littering and then like obliterated that person. That would at least make sense. But he, they still went with the responding. Well, and it changed it, the word aggression to violence, which also upset me. But yeah, these are some of my original thoughts, but there's all sorts of stuff in here I want to get into. All right. Well, that that's uh, that's also very interesting. I think that they treated Gort more as Klaatu's bodyguard in the second one. So more yes. specific to just being his guardian and not like it isn't even revealed in the 51 version until later towards the end that Gort is capable of destroying the entire planet and that he is this almost dead man switch for hey, if if we go out of line then there's this immediate outsized, outscaled, not proportional uh, doomsday scenario that happens to us, which uh, I, I, have qual- I have quibbles with that, Robert. Yeah, you should. You absolutely <laughs> should. There's nothing to scale about the 1951 version. There is no proportionality at all in the response from the space robot cops. Right. And in the, in the 2008 version, it's Keanu Reeves, Neo's down there saying, hey, there's so, only so many habitable planets. Right. And if you guys are going to mess this one up, then we're going to have to take you down because your one species doesn't outweigh the thousands and thousands of other species on this planet that you are wantonly des- destroying with your straws and floating plastic islands. So for the greater good, we must murder everybody. Right. And we're, gonna, we're not going to tell you how we came to that decision. Right. We're not going to make an argument. You're, we're just going to claim it, and you're going to all bow down and lick our boots and agree with us for some reason, because <laughs> these are the most spineless humans in history. And we could have told you this 20 years ago, but uh, yeah, we don't like to get involved until the last minute when we have to destroy you. And it's not like we have all this amazing space technology that we could share with you and help 
you know, be more environmentally <laughs> friendly. We couldn't do that. We're just going to come down from our on high position and judge you guilty and murder everybody. Yeah. Yeah, here's a super, super biodegradable straw. Use that instead. They could have, but he didn't want to. All right. So why don't we, since my notes are more linear. Yeah, let's okay? go from the first movie. Yeah, uh, that's what I got. Movie. Do, uh -huh. do your first movie and then we'll go to the okay. second. Okay. All right. So my first note is that this movie is kind of based on a, you know, Cold War slash patriotism thing. And it's trying to sort of maybe play up the, the angle of military sacrifice and maybe have a bit of a message for world peace, like the dangers of the potential for destroying the entire planet with nuclear arms. And so the message is, hey, we just had this world war and all these people died. It would be for naught if we just screw it up and blow ourselves up again. That was kind of like what I my envisioning of why they made this movie, like what message they're trying to tell us. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, Gort represents total nuclear annihilation, for sure. But my first note, if you want to hear about it, um, some of the writing is kind of fun. So, uh, you know, um, Klaatu comes to Earth, and he's just like a normal dude. And he walks out of the ship, and the soldiers instantly shoot him, which is the same in both versions. And then, you know, they take Klaatu to, you know, just some random doctor's office, which is pretty sweet. I love the low-tech look of 1951 version of everything. It's just like some rando place and some rando place. Um, but anyway, he escapes and he joins this little family who has a room for rent. And he's sitting down to dinner and they're all having this discussion. And they're all talking about this alien problem. And they're like, one of them is like, why doesn't the government do anything? And the other one says, what can they do? They're only people like us, which was great line. Thank you very much. And then he goes, people might ask, they're Democrats. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Did, did you read that as he was saying that Democrats aren't people? Yeah. Okay. Democrats. It wasn't like, no, they're Democrats. They're better than people. No, I thought, the, yeah, absolutely. They're not even people. Okay. They're less than people. You know, the finer cloth argument. So that was my first line. What do you got? What's your first, what's your first thing you wrote down? Well, I thought that it was interesting that Klaatu wanted to meet with all the heads of state at the same time rather than favoring anyone. You know, granted, my perspective is, well, none of these heads of state are really leaders in any sense of the term, like legitimate leaders. Uh, and they even make that point in the 2008 version a little bit, at least uh, the Jennifer Connelly character does. But I, I did like that um, Klaatu said that he has impatience for stupidity, trivialities, and petty squabbles. And at the time, this was, you know, the capitalism versus communism. And I don't think that's a petty squabble. This is like individual freedom and rights and liberty and property rights versus collectivism. I mean, that is not a petty thing. And if we span it to the 2008 version, if they're really worried about pollution and environmental destruction, then just get rid of all the governments. You don't need to take out the entire human population. You know, <laughs> the biggest polluter is the government and not uh, allowing property rights to be exercised properly. So anyway, that's that's my uh, my first note was his impatience for stupidity and his not will not wanting to favor any particular group ahead of another. Well, and I I kept seeing Ron Paul when he was talking about stuff like that. Uh, we, we aren't here, we're not concerned with the internal affairs of your planet. They may be serious to us, but uh, look, as long as you don't uh, take it beyond, uh, beyond the earth, then it's not gonna be an issue to us. You know, it's, uh, it's for you to resolve. And uh, his, he had two, two points about that. One was the development of nuclear weapons, or I guess maybe at the time they just called them atomic weapons, and the development of rocket technology. And it was the combination of the two that then presented a danger to others uh, in the solar system, I guess, that led to uh, his coming to Earth to say, uh, you know, you got to, 
whatever you do, you got to keep your uh, your troubles here. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I do see the non-interventionist uh, Ron Paul foreign policy initially, but then sort of the backtracking of like, well, then you did this, so we're going to go against our principles here. <laughs> well, they 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 definitely raised the threat level pretty high, and it's not clear whether that's just uh, kind of a Trump thing. You know, they're just uh, browbeating us into uh, listening to them or something. Uh, but but at the end, it was like, no, it was it sounded more like aggression is going to be responded to. Uh, and maybe that is going to be more in terms of uh, the proportionality that we we're talking about earlier. Yeah, it's interesting because towards the end, yeah, they do make it more explicit, especially when he explains how Gort is basically their um doomsday scenario and self-imposed or they, they put themselves voluntarily into that situation, which is bizarre, but it's also very collective. They put themselves, yeah. did everybody agree? Did the children agree? What's, what's the situation there? But anyway, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but when they say that, um, having that ability to project some destructive power out of your own planet puts everyone else at risk, even, even if it's perhaps, you know, unintended or accidental, I kind of see the argument that, you would want to mitigate that in some way. But on the other hand, it also is, is almost making that Bush doctrine of the preemptive strike. You know, we have to strike them over there before they strike us over here in the shape of a mushroom cloud or whatever. You know, and, and it's, it's kind of the posturing with Iran and North Korea that keeps happening. Uh, and that's hot button uh, these days, right? That seems to be amp- amping up. And- right, right. That's, we're going to have to start a war because they're about to get a nuclear weapon because they've been about to get a nuclear weapon for the past 30 years. Right. Meanwhile, it's... The people talking about that, saying it's bad, who have actually used them on a civilian population and have, I think, detonated over a thousand of them um, over the course of decades of nuclear testing. Yeah, but it is at least the um, the recognition of property rights in the 1951 version that is very clear, as opposed to the 2008 version where they say, well, this is your planet, but we deem that you're not good enough. Well, who has a better claim to this planet than humans, (laughs) us or some alien race? How could he possibly say that no matter what we do to this planet, that we don't have a better claim to it than an alien race? It's ridiculous. Are you talking about the 2008 version? Yeah. yeah. I, I think he's, he's saying that the other species, being more numerous, have... Have a better claim to this planet than humans do? Yeah, the Tribbles, because there's millions of them, <laughs> have more of a claim than the you know, peak sentient beings on the planet. That the Earth is like a public good or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a universal good that everybody... It's everybody's property, right? And if you're not yes. treating it properly, yeah, they're the galactic communists. Yeah, I, I really thought that that the 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 2008 movie like was 180 degrees opposite of the message of 1951. And it's like even if you want to make it topical, it's just you've changed the whole tenor and tone of what happened in the in the 1951 movie. And uh, one of the lines that I liked the uh, the most was uh, the idea that uh oh where is it that that you have the ability to uh, uh pursue pursue more oh here we go uh, the result is we live in peace without arms or armies secure in the knowledge that we are free from aggression and war free to pursue more profitable enterprises and i love that line yeah yeah under threat of annihilation but <laughs> well as long as you aren't aggressive towards somebody yeah, but right? all it takes I, don't, a- I don't think the the in the fifty one movie it may be a little bit uh, nebulous, but I don't think they're threatening to kill everybody because somebody does something. It's it's more tempered, even though the the threat to level New York City certainly was uh, a little bit out of 
uh, out of sorts in that regard. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get that feeling. I got the feeling that as long as if anybody ever attacked any other planet from Earth, they, they would just kill everybody on Earth. That's the impression that I get. But I also have issue. I mean, I like that quote for the most part, but I don't like the part where he says, without arms. So they've voluntarily completely disarmed and given all this power just to these space robots. That's, that just creates a huge incentive for anybody to like hack the robots and just take complete control. And then you have a completely vulnerable population to do with as you please. So I don't like disarming. I, I think everybody should individually arm for themselves and worry about their own protection. In addition to possibly also creating some sort of universal space cops, if, you, if, if everybody agrees with that. But I still have issues with the children, the future children all somehow agreeing to this. We should all be our own Gort. <laughs> And it may be that uh, we we uh, we could interpret it sort of like a Second Amendment thing, and it's like, well, it's not uh, it's not that you can't have arms, uh, but the nation states can't have armies, armies and and armed forces. Yeah, I wonder if they would consider in their in their society that since you can't have violence and aggression, then you can't have compulsory taxation. So yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Yeah. funding the space force. Yeah, I'm curious, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Robots are probably pretty cheap, so <laughs> go fund me pages for them. There you go. Yeah, automated. We're we're losing our jobs, our gerbs to the, <laughs> to the robots. But let's go back to the fifty-one. Um, what did you guys think? Is that I thought this was fun when uh, Klaatu wants to take the kid out to the movies, and he's like, "Well, how are we going to go there? Is this going to cost money?" And the kid's like, "Yeah, it's going to cost some money." And he's like, "Okay, well, I don't have money. I got these." And he pulls out like a handful of diamonds, and the kid's like, "Diamonds is money." And he's like, yeah, this is what we use for money and, and where I come from, which is ridiculous because diamonds are not divisible. How are you going to break the change? Like, I well, mean, you spend three diamonds for like $3 or whatever happened? It, it does depend on the supply. Maybe their supply is, is very high and diamonds to them are like copper to us. It could be. Those could be like three pennies that he pulls out of his pocket. He could be a very poor <laughs> Klaatu. <laughs> right. But I've also heard that diamonds are each unique and there's different levels of clarity. And if there's imperfections or what do they, what do they call them? Like little facets. And, yeah, right. So you can't actually compare them um, as easily for, you know, like this is an ounce of gold. It's an ounce of gold. It doesn't matter if it's all scratched up or not. Whereas a diamond, you know, you could have the same weight of diamond, but you've got a bunch of little shards or you've got this little perfect high clarity, you know, really rare version, like uh, what do they call it, the Nile or, or the blue one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, diamonds don't make you good money just for that. Like, Well, we don't know that that is the characteristic of these diamonds, though. He, uh, The character, uh, Hugh Marlowe's character, Tom, takes them to a, um, yeah, a jeweler, right? Yeah, the jeweler right. says, he says, these are not diamonds from Earth or something to that tune. Something yeah, he says effect. he's never seen them before, the like of which they've never come from so, Earth or whatever. So maybe they are all identical. You know, maybe it's like some kind of, you know, different kind of diamond. What what I thought was cool about it was that, oh, that uh, that the rest of the universe or whatever uses commodity money. Yeah, that is fun. That is fun. Yeah, yeah. It's not just some fiat thing. That's true. No, yeah, it's like uh, actual commodity money. And the other thing I noted about that was the, uh, the whole subjective value issue that uh, the little kid says, uh, don't, tell, don't tell mom because she doesn't like me to steal from people. Right. And I go, well, it's all about subjective value. You know, if it's worth it to him to give him up for the $2 bills to go see the movie, then it's worth it to him. Sure. Yeah, absolutely right. I heard, I heard him say that and I was like, oh, he knows he's, in his opinion, he's ripping Klaatu off big time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I would think the same thing. 
I would hope you that's would. That's only his subjective value, right? But right. But according to him, I mean, these are like nothing to him. Or maybe he just made them in a microwave or something. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're dead maybe. Geek, like uh, from QVC. You guys ever see the <laughs> yeah, cut glass? Yes. <laughs> uh, so one of the big things they do this in both movies is as soon as he lands, they treat him with hostility and make him a prisoner. And I wonder, I mean, is that how would you guys suggest that something like this be handled? You got some alien being obviously from somewhere else. Would you react in a similar manner? I mean, obviously you wouldn't shoot him, but I mean, would you have this kind of standoffishness and like wariness and I don't know, try to like lock it down and and all of those things? Well, I could see a government wanting to, you know, think that they're in control there. I mean, cops are always wanting to control the situation, right? They're the ultimate authority in the military and they're always the ones that, you know, they have to be in control of the situation. So I could see them wanting to do that. However, you're obviously dealing with a superior technology, technological race or whatever that is potentially way above your pay grade. So if you go messing with it and you do something wrong, you could have severe consequences. So I would think that a wait and see kind of approach, more like the, how the, it was handled in um, The Arrival. You guys remember that movie? You guys see that movie? Sure where the lady is a language expert and they're trying to communicate with these octopus squid monster guys. And they're very much trying to learn about each other as much as possible before anything really goes down. Cause you don't want to, you don't want to start some shit and not be able to back it up. Right. You don't want to like piss somebody off and have the world get blown up. That just kind of makes sense to me. I think even yeah, that was even true in independence day, wasn't it? I mean, when all those ships landed or arrived, they just kind of, were waiting to see what what they were going to do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The ship when they started burning everything up, and right, and then we're like, yeah. well, "What's going to happen? We don't know." We'll try and make some contact with somebody and see what's going on. But yeah, in this movie, they're very much just start pointing guns at people and just gun them down. <laughs> like eh, that's probably not the best idea. Yeah, I mean, it was. Well, it's, it's, always some, it's always somebody with a trigger finger, though, right? It's it's not everybody shoots at them. It's just somebody makes a shot, and then everybody somebody says, "Stop your firing." Yeah, did you guys see that as kind of an anti-gun thing? I, I now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it kind of was, but I, I didn't really notice it at the time or didn't think about it at the time. Mm, maybe yeah. sort of. I don't know. Not necessarily. I, um, you know, it, it does surprise me if somebody, if one person does fire, I think that would elicit more people to fire because there's this sudden break in the tension. You know, like people are going to be startled by that. So if right. one person fires, wouldn't you think like a bunch of people would, and then it would just kind of escalate from there? Yeah, that's usually what happens. <laughs> It is kind of funny in the in the fifty one movie where Clatu uh, is you know saying some nice things and then he reaches in to his uh, his uniform right and he pulls out the the device and then it opens up and then he gets shot and then everybody decides now he's a friend because he got shot right then they all rush up to him and yeah and it's like oh man we didn't mean that yeah yeah that was weird yeah and and they did that even in the two thousand eight version after they shoot him in the street and then people are all of a sudden like crowding around him and and all that where. You'd think if he's like this menace and this alien life form, you're not sure what's going to happen, like that you wouldn't immediately react that way, especially after they just shot him. And him pulling out that like tricorder thing that had the spikes come out. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, what would they call that? Like a, a, a furtive motion? I mean, it, it looked, sure. could have been a weapon of some sort. And that action looks like it could have meant harm, potential harm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, agree with that. I, wrote, I wrote down something about, uh, you know, he could have let us know he was coming ahead of time and that uh you know he, he had some uh, gifts for us and uh and instead of just landing i mean that seemed a little rude even when you go visit somebody here you got you got to give them a, a phone call first 
Yeah, you think that maybe they should have done the contact move where they transmit the messages on the third, you know, angle of the plans or whatever. Uh -huh. <laughs> they, 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 they had to like look at the sound frequency sideways or something to see the plans to build the little uh, rotation thing. Yeah, something like that. Is that what they had to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun how the different space movies have dealt with different alien invasions. Like in, in this movie, they don't care at all if Klaatu is maybe carrying some pathogen. You know, so they're not in the spacesuits, you know, worried about contamination or anything. They just run right up to him and grab him. And they're like, hey, what's up? Hey, he looks like one of us, whatever, who cares? You just got out of the spaceship. You'll do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, so I got to ask. Do a couple of x-rays. Yeah, sure. What what day did the day did the Earth stand still? Because in this one, the first one, it's they, they call it a spring day uh, in one of the radio announcements. But then the suit that he borrows from the hospital says um, July 18th, 1951. But then little Bobby or whatever his name is has school tomorrow. So I'm like really confused here. <laughs> yes, I think that was just an oversight. It's uh, technically, uh, from what I read and saw, technically it should be uh, the summer of 1951. But some of those other references, you know, make it more confusing. I think also the, the images of uh, Washington, D.C. are of springtime as opposed to summer. Okay, yeah. And, and wasn't it also when they showed... Um... Maybe this was the 2008 version where they showed the spheres in the different cities around the world. It is always daytime. <laughs> yes. So, the earth is flat. It's behind the curve. It's <laughs> we're all illuminated apparently. <laughs> oh, right. Um, let's see. Oh, I had one note in here that uh, somebody said all reputable scientists caution to not jump to conclusions. I thought that was good. doesn't seem to be happening these days. Hmm. I like the one from uh, 1951. Bar uh, Barnard says, it isn't faith that makes good science, it's curiosity. And I thought, well, that would be a good way for a scientist to think today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, there is one thing that I really had a gripe with in 51. And that is Lincoln go, Memorial. Yeah. They say, you know, I need to talk to a guy like that. A great man. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty rough. That was pretty rough. I wrote that down as well. He's such a great guy. I'd love to talk to him. Yeah. I mean, we could get into it, but we don't really have time to talk about all the crimes of Abraham Lincoln. No, just read uh, <laughs> DiLorenzo books and uh, you will be set straight on your um, public or government education of what Lincoln was all about. Um, oh, there's of course, some total of his knowledge is just that one little speech. You yeah, know, and it's like, well, that one little speech is pretty good. Yeah, the speech isn't too bad. <laughs> if it wasn't. Yeah, if it actually came from somebody that believed those words or something. Sure, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite lines from the 51 version is um, people are substituting fear for reason. Mm -hmm. That also seems very present day. And uh, isn't it Tom Woods? He's been saying this lately that it seems abundantly clear that the right understands the left's positions and arguments, but the left has no idea what the right's positions and arguments are. No, they think that the, the right is just pure evil. They are akin yeah. to Nazis. And they, yeah, if you are on the right, you are you hold destructive and violent and terrible views and you're probably just a terrible person. Right. So they're basically reinforcing the fear. And I remember um, the election night in the aftermath and Robert, you and I kind of like, we weren't live streaming, but we were like live chatting as it was happening. Yes, we were. We were screenshotting people like saying, what are we going to tell our kids? And I think one of my comments <laughs> to you was, well, if you stop telling your kids that this potential, you know, this potential candidate or potential president is this monster who, who's to be feared, um, then maybe you wouldn't have to like walk it back later, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, let's see. I know, my, my, my favorite line from the movie is uh, Gort Barada Nikto, because that's the one that has uh, 
stuck stuck around, right? All the uh, cultural references to that. Yeah, I'm not familiar. What is this? this they, they, that's they, that's the, so it's yeah, it's what he says to have Gort stand down. Yeah, uh, Patricia Neal has to relay that message to the robot so he doesn't destroy the Earth for Klaatu being shot, which seems a little extreme, getting back to the proportionality issue. But but that line uh, has kind of stuck around in uh, sort of the the culture. Fun. I like it when science fiction stuff things stick around. Like I, you hear Grok every once in a while. That's always nice. <laughs> or frack. Mm. And, and they uh, they say it in the 2008 version, but you know very early on. But yeah, because it's in the more immediate sense and not at the climax of the movie. I think it was more of just a nod, and it reinforces the concept that the new Gort is really just a bodyguard. So it, yeah. it was basically Klaatu saying, "No, Gort, you know, don't defend me right now. Like things are cool." Mm-hmm. We can destroy the Earth later. Yeah, yeah, we got plenty of time to destroy the Earth later. Like, they're <laughs> uh, sinking the Rock of Gibraltar. As a uh, a little uh, tidbit, if you're familiar with the uh, movie Tron, have you guys done Tron? The original? I don't think yeah, we've the original Tron's, but I don't know if the original has more in it than the remake does. Uh, in the uh, in Alan's little cubicle, that would be uh, uh, who's the guy? Anyway, the uh, next actor down under bridges. Uh, in his cubicle, he's got the little sign that says uh, Gort Barado, Barada Nicto. Ah, that's nice. I like this. So little it shows up a little bit there. Yeah. And yeah. I actually bought an album back in the 1980s by a group called Klaatu. Oh, yeah? That at the time, there was this suspicion that maybe it was the Beatles had gotten back together and they were putting out music under this anonymous name of Klaatu. Uh, and then that turned out not to be the case. Oh, but Ringo Starr did an album where he used the uh, spaceship and Gort on the cover. And then his uh, face is uh, cut into Klaatu's uh, face. So a couple of little uh, cultural references there. Yeah, pop culture references. And we missed one on a recent episode of Galaxy Quest. One of the aliens uh-huh. um, is named Klaatu as a nod. Yes, that's right. The day there stood still. Nice. So we missed that one. Uh, okay. Before we move on, can I just say that, um, can I compare the two kids in the two movies? Even though the first kid is a real, like, leave it to beaver, gosh, golly, Willikers type kid, I found him super endearing. <laughs> Whereas the Jaden Smith character, I didn't care for him at all. I mean, whatever. He's just a little kid. But I, I thought that the, the 1951 kid had a lot more personality to him. Yeah. What'd you think of his mom, like, basically gaslighting him? Like, no, nah, you were just dreaming that. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> like, what do they call it? Like um, patterning the witness or something? Like it's not leading the witness, but it's like when the investigators, the police, like basically tell you what happened and then the witness starts to believe that's the, the series of events. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then his uh, shoes are wet. Right, and then she's like, <gasps> maybe uh, he was. <laughs> <laughs> that did seem a little, uh, it, I mean, a little forced in terms of, Whoever believes that, you know, that that your parents says, oh, you were just dreaming. It's it's the uh, early evening. I'm, I'm pretty sure he wasn't dreaming. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Like you just had an amazing dream just now. I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, can we talk about uh, the fiance guy, Tom? Oh, yeah, sure. Hugh Marlowe. Yeah. Also another uh, actor in a lot of these uh, sci-fi movies. I hated that guy. He was such a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was an insurance salesman. <laughs> well, what did you think about him at the very end? When he was like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the one to take this guy down. You know, someone's got to do it. I'm gonna, you know, make my bones and get rich out of this. And you're gonna be married to a, you know, a fantastic guy." And then she's like, "I'm not marrying anybody." <laughs> I mean, on if, if from his perspective, you know, that he's dealing with an alien menace and he's doing his part to deal with it, right? But he's also doing the, um, you know, 
turn in your neighbors thing, like the East Germany situation where he's like being a good little, you know, bootlicker and following the indoctrination to. Oh, sure. Sure. He is working within the system that he knows and understands, and he's going to be a part of that and, and hopefully move up in that and rewarded. And yeah, he's going to get a pat on the head for sure. Right. Meanwhile, but, totally ignoring what his, um, you know, very important person in his life is saying. But yeah. in his defense, nobody, nobody bothered to explain to him what was going on. Right. Even when she has a chance and she goes to his office, she just goes, you have to trust me. And it's like, well, why don't you just tell him, you know, all this stuff about, well, he's from another planet and he's, you know, here to warn us uh, so that we so we don't get destroyed, you know, and rally him to their side. Instead, it's no, you just have to trust what I say. But then there's no movie. There you go. Well, and he would just like have a... to tell her it was a dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they kind of did him dirty. It... I think Dennis is right. All, all she had to do was actually treat him like a human being and explain something for like 30 seconds, and he wouldn't have been the uh, counterforce there. Now, the diamonds that he took to the jewelers, were those the ones he found in the room, or were those the ones from Bobby? From Bobby, I thought. What did he find? He found name? like one diamond in the room. Okay. So to me, that's like, all right, you go into some guy's room, and you steal a diamond, and you're the good guy? Well, he just found it on the floor and thought, wow, this is weird. This guy's got diamond a diamond. Maybe there's something nefarious about his activities. Yeah, they thought he was like a diamond trader, a diamond thief. Remember? Yeah. That's what the kid's theory was. Maybe he worked for De Beers. I mean, they, they do. If, I mean, they're renting a room to the guy. They do kind of have an incentive it, to know a little bit about him. If he is a diamond thief, he is bringing undue risk upon their situation. I'd agree with that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last comment on the 51 version before we get into 2008 version and yeah, we are running out of time. This might have to be an extra super duper long episode <laughs> because it's two movies packed into one. And I'm Dennis, if you've got time, I, I'm I'm good. Oh with sure. Yeah. Uh, so I liked how Klaatu was able to selectively shut down the Earth. I mean, that's the whole the day the Earth stood still. That's the demonstration of power, which I think should have been a very central point to our discussion. But the demonstrating the capacity to cause them harm without causing them harm, and he actually selectively kept planes in the air and hospitals operating and all those things, and apparently watches working. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the guy, the guy, That's yeah. a, maybe an oversight. <laughs> but but that was like uh, Barnhart had said, well, you have to demonstrate your ability to cause harm without, you know, you could level New York City or you could sink the rock of Gibraltar, but those would be destructive and scary to people. Whereas this other thing where yeah. you shut everything down, people are going to take notice. Although, again, it doesn't work if you don't tell everybody you're going to do it. Yeah, that's true. Right? Isn't that? Isn't that? I mean, it's like you sh you should be saying, "Hey, look, here's a. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to demonstrate the fact that we're serious about this, and you need to uh, listen to us." So you need to do that. It just happens. You need to be up on the screen. You know, get me the leaders of the world on television right now. And be like, <laughs> awesome lethality of the Alan Parsons project. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, it would have had to be on radio, though, because that seemed to be the major media. Right. So, Daniel, do you have some kind of problem with Klaatu's aggression in that situation? No, I'm, I'm okay with that one. And I thought it was a clever response to the conundrum that Barnhart was basically pointing out that you need to come up with something that demonstrates this power without killing a bunch of innocent people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, man. So, anyway, do, do we want to get into the end of the film before we move on to 2008? I mean, we've already talked about it a little bit here. Yeah, let's go for sure. it. Sure. So, Klaatu's goal is the complete elimination of aggression. And they he's kind of a little bit fuzzy about the creation of this intergalactic space force of Gortz. But they claim that in matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over us. So I'm assuming that 
they've set something in motion and they can't stop it or change it. That's what I take away from that, which is kind of strange. I mean, that you would not allow it to change with the times to add on more responsibilities or less, you know, given nuance and that sort of thing. Um, it's like a set it and forget it, like apocalypse thing. And it could really turn around and bite you in the ass. Like, you know, there's a lot of um, science fiction movies where technology gets out of control and like Terminators are killing everybody and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I do appreciate that it's for the elimination of aggression and they're actually pointing out the issue. It's not, you know, that words are bad and words hurt feelings. It's that aggression has occurred and that that's what's wrong. It's almost like if we all agree in the non-aggression principle, the next question is, how do we enforce it? And that was what was cool about this movie to me is that, well, here's a mechanism. It may have some flaws and there may be some issues still, but it, it seemed to be a movement in that that right direction. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the, the heart of what they were trying to accomplish. I, I don't know about giving up all, all your weaponry and all your ability to defend yourself <laughs> even from this your own creation. That seems like, wouldn't you have built in like an off switch? I think I probably would have built something kind of an off switch, but well, actually, really uh, YOLO on the, the creation of this uh, intergalactic space force. It seems like his, uh, his comment, the uh, Gort Barada Nikto is like, don't respond to the violence committed against me. Mm. Right. Cause that's what he's saying. He's gone. Okay. So you've seen some aggression and it's towards, you know, me, but uh, I'm going to order you not to respond to that. And so maybe that, is a a little bit of an out. Okay, so that's a little bit of an off switch. And like, ignore this particular. I, I I voluntarily give up my property rights in this situation. Yeah, something. I, I'm down with that. So he's like, Alexa, don't defend me. Right. <laughs> yes. But I still have issues with all the future kids born into these civilizations that never agreed to this. It's uh, I'm on board with a group of people wanting to live off in their own little enclave and whatever, but it does raise issues with the You know, I think, though, um, as I as I understand uh, sort of what was going on here, that it was only insofar as taking our aggression beyond the earth, right, that we could still be aggressive against each other. Right. They're not going to do anything about that. It's just that, well, if you come out and you start uh, lining up missiles around Mars, well, we're going to uh, take that as a, a threat. Right. But if they can travel at the speed that they could, and it was, what, 4,000 miles an hour per second or whatever it was, couldn't they pretty quickly respond to an aggression, an, an extended aggression, rather than just the capacity to have aggression in that, you know, outside of the Earth, but when they were actually posturing to do so? Like, weren't they well, I think prematurely getting involved here? I think I'm thinking that if we sent a missile, if we sent a spaceship to Mars, the thing is right next to the spaceship would be uh, another spaceship with Gort inside. And it's like, well, you know, are we going to really try to menace Mars with uh, the, the policeman right next to us who's then going to destroy us as soon as we shoot our missile off? Yeah, no cops, no stops, right? Something. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many Gorts there are, but the impression was that there were enough to... Uh, you know, keep keep people from aggressing each other. Right. But it seemed to only appear, you know, within his eyesight or in his visible range, right? At least, especially in the 1951 version. I don't know about that 2008. Maybe I mean, a little better sensor range. Is it making the argument that, like, the more we're watched, the better we'll behave? <laughs> so Facebook will be the ultimate policeman? Yeah, so, or, the, you know, the NSA thing or the, the Panopticon, the Jeremy Bentham solution. Well, that is true psychologically, right? I mean, they're not wrong about that. Yeah, but I, I would have issues with it. I don't think that you can actually develop 
fully uh, human flourishing under that kind of regime. Well, under that kind of authoritarian regime, but the main thing that kind of stops people from behaving badly in otherwise normal situations is the view of the views of like your neighbors and your friends and other people. Like, like there's a whole bunch of looting, like in Hurricane Katrina, when everybody like evacuates the city, right? But there's not like a whole bunch of looting when people are all living in their homes and doing business as normal. Yeah, there's like social constraints and social pressures, but those are more of like, I don't know, like market based and not so much this collectivized. Right. You know, is not like your friends and neighbors. No, you're absolutely right. Right. Well, I mean, in in the the Stasi, it was your friends and neighbors, but. (laughs) And in struggle sessions. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you guys want to move on to 2008? Yeah, that dumpster fire. And then we can. One other other thing I was going to mention, and that is uh, in some of the commentaries, one of the things that comes up is this uh, uh, this metaphor for Christianity as well. Uh, because he's revived from the dead, and uh, the censors demanded that they add a, a line in there of dialogue that he says, well, the power of life and death is uh, only granted to the spirit, something like that, the eternal spirit. Yeah, and that was not a line in the, yeah, that was not a line in the, in the, uh, in the script, and the, uh, the director had to put it in there because of the, the censors, because they thought, well, this would convey a, uh, like a competitor to Christ, and then his name on earth is Carpenter, mm. which, of course, also is alluding to uh, uh, Christianity. Sure, yeah. and, in, and in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, uh, John Wick walks across the water. Does he? When he's out at the little pond talking to the little sphere that comes out of the water. Uh, oh, yeah. Movie, yeah. Kind of walk across the water. And I thought, well, you know, maybe they're, maybe it's just a little nuanced thing to uh, play with people's minds, but. That's fun. I didn't even connect those dots. Yeah, yeah. And in the 2008 one, uh, he heals a dead guy, right? So he's... Right, the cop? Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit when we get into this one, because I'm like, well, why'd you smash him up? (laughs) If you're just kidding. (laughs) It's like, he has weird powers. Yeah. Okay, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the very, very end, the very last line of the 1951 movie is basically, your choice is clear, join us or die. Would you take that as a threat or more as like, hey, this is the situation? But it seems to me it's like a threat. But it's, it's more like a promise, like, hey, if you attack us, then there will be a response. I think it's like, if you want to leave your planet, you're going to have to join us. If you don't want to join us, then you're just going to have to stay on your own planet and do whatever you want to do. Yeah, it still sounds like they're claiming ownership over the rest of the galaxy. <laughs> yeah, but they did just homestead it. Did they? Just <laughs> having space cops, did they? Yeah, I mean they're they're using it. They're able to traverse it and uh, travel within it. Seems like they've have a higher claim to it than the Earthlings. Maybe they've done that for some of it. I wouldn't say that they own all of it. As far as you can see, light years away. <laughs> Everything owns belongs to you. <laughs> Plant the flag, Robert. All right, we're moving on. Moving on to the 2008. Yeah, the 2008 uh, watermelon environmentalist claptrap, which. Stars uh, Keanu, John Wick 3 is coming out uh, this week, I think. So uh, perhaps we can do another Keanu Fest at some point in the future and do uh, some of the John Wick movies because I hear they're good. Yeah, if you want some good uh, kill em action stuff, it's some pretty fun yeah. stuff from what I hear. I've seen the first two. I haven't heard the, seen a third, but I heard the third's got some really good action in it. It amazes me that they've even done more than one. I mean, I saw the first two as well, and I thought after the first one, well, that's it. There's not going to be a sequel. Right. Uh, they and they made so much money and they were like, hey, franchise, baby. Yeah. Uh, I might add a note here that in my mind, 
the only successful movie or the after the 2008 the day the earth stood still uh keanu reeves had kind of a dry spell until john wick so maybe there is some justice in the universe yeah yeah i would agree i mean you're gonna have to sit out the next he's done some decent movies right yeah he's he's the matrix man and now he's the wick man and other than that kind of had some filler stuff in between yeah from 2008 to john wick uh, not a very good time not so much. So what do you want to get in with this first, uh, start off with the 2008? I kind of want to talk about how there's this doctor lady and she gets a call in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. And then these these random feds are like, you're coming with us. And she's like, I'm, am I under arrest? And they're like, no. Well, we're taking you into federal custody. And she's like, okay, I guess. Like, <laughs> Why? I was, uh, the whole time I was like, I ain't going with you. Why? Why should I go with you? But of course the movie has to happen, but. Yeah, it was definitely a kidnap scene. And I really enjoyed her line when they said, well, it's a national security matter. And they, and she says, well, national security means whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's different than uh, what we saw in some earlier movies. I'm trying to think uh, uh, maybe Stargate was kind of like that. Uh, Andromeda Strain, which was also a movie uh, directed by Robert Wise, by the way, where everybody knows they're on the list for when there's this kind of problem and they get called. Right. Mm-hmm. And somebody from the military shows up at their door and they say, OK, you got to come now. But in this case, I was struck by the same thing. It's like she's not on a list and she doesn't even know she's on the list. Right. It's like she was added to the list by this other guy. Well, Matt yeah. didn't put her on there. Ham character. Yeah. Yeah. He put her on there probably without telling her because it seemed like some of the other guys uh, knew because they had been yeah. participating in previous exercises. And then they knew that this one was different, that this one was real. But I got to ask if they know that this thing is coming towards the earth. And it's going to hit Manhattan and they're supposed to assess the aftermath and how we're going to recover from this. Even though the one guy figures out, well, there is no recovery at this speed. Ain't nothing going to happen. We're going to sterilize the planet. But if the theater is, Hey, we're going to try to rebuild from this. Why would you fly a helicopter into the blast zone? Makes no sense. Wouldn't they get wiped out because they'd be right in the middle of it? Yeah. You'd go down to a bunker. I would think. That's what you do in every other movie. In the Terminator two, <laughs> 3 or 3, I think, it's a race to get to like some bunker in the desert to try to survive the uh, global annihilation. I wouldn't yeah, go to intercept it with this helicopter. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, if you're just going to watch it, well, I mean, okay, fine. but And it does slow down and land, but uh, they don't know yeah, that, that was going to happen. Right. So anyway, that was just weird. Um, but I got to say that um, the new Gort, when he lands... He's huge and menacing and like fluidly moving and uh, he's badass in this, <laughs> at least initially. Uh, when he later turns into like these little bug things, I think, where he's this swarm of locusts, I, I kind of think that was kind of weak. But when he was like this um, c- combat robot, 30 feet tall, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he looked better than a dude in a suit, <laughs> like a cheap <laughs> suit thing from the 51 version, but... I still don't like this Gort at all. He didn't make any sense in terms of the mission. It seems like in this version, like these space alien people have lived among us and they're sitting there silently evaluating us and judging us. And they're like, well, this decision has come down from on high and we're going to, we're going to kill everybody. So what is, what is Keanu's mission here? He's just here to tell us that he's going to kill everybody because at no point in time, are they looking for any kind of a, a change in humanity, right? They're just saying, well, you can't change. You never do change. And humans never demonstrate change. That was my, one of my big problems with Klaatu. Klaatu seems to, they're, they're, you know, Gort at the very end of the movie. He's a big swarm of bugs. 
and he's Keanu's kind of holding him off psychically with his psychic electrical powers or whatever. And they're in that like tunnel thing. And he goes, and she like cares about her son. Well, that was never the issue. The never, it was never the issue that, oh, humans just don't care about their kids. So we're just going to kill everybody. So Keanu sees her caring about her son, and then he changes his mind about killing everybody. His issue was that humans destroy the planet. It wasn't that they don't care about the kids. So why did he change his mind? No, no, they, they telegraph it way earlier when he's talking to the old Chinese dude. The Chinese dude has been living there for so long and he agrees that, yeah, they, they are destructive, but I want to die here also because I see the other side. I see the humanity and the love and the, and the opposite side of their destructive nature that makes it all worthwhile, the humanity of it. And the turn doesn't actually happen in that tunnel. It happens on the bridge when this kid who had earlier said, oh, we should kill that alien. My, if my dad were here, we would kill him. We'd wipe him out. And that kid is just spewing out that propaganda that, that you know he has this love for his father and that's been co-opted by the government, by the military. Yeah. Uh, to think that that's how you solve your problem with violent aggression. But the turn is when the kid's about to fall off that little water bridge and Keanu, the Neo Matrix, uses his Matrix powers and saves him. And the kid <laughs> now likes him. That's the turn. That's the turn that switches Keanu's um, into liking humanity. That's Keanu's moment when he decides to save the kid because this bumbling kid almost falls off a bridge. Right. Yep. And he's like, well, I'm still- going to murder everybody, but now that this kid's about to fall off a bridge, I guess I can't kill everybody. What? It still it still begs the question of why would Keanu have the power to do this? What? I mean, is he like in charge of all the aliens? Um, because the guy that was here, Mr. Wu, had been here for 70 years. Wouldn't he be in a better position to make this decision? Well, Neo yeah. went to get the report from the guy. Right. And the guy gives him a fairly positive report and he just dismisses it. And he goes, no, nah, we're doing it. <laughs> As a, I've already started the process and we're not stopping. Well, it's like, well let's the report wait. Was, government's work. <laughs> I thought the report was, yes, they are destructive. And so therefore we need to proceed with the mission, but I don't want to leave. I want to die here. So it was more like, I'm going to do my duty and say, yes, we need to proceed with destroying the earth or the, the humans, but I also want to die with them because I, I ended up liking them. That's just stupid. <laughs> All right, Robert. It's lazy writing at the very He's best. your problem now, Robert. Well, I just hated the humans in this movie. I hated every time that Keanu was like, humans are bad. You guys are blowing up the environment. Everybody's just like, yeah, we're sorry. We're super sorry. Yeah, we're totally terrible. It yeah. was the most like bootlicking, apologizing, like never apologize. Argue. Argue your point. Like what exactly do you mean we're destroying the planet? What? You might, when I take a tree and I turn it into a house, is that destroying the planet? When I pollute some carbon into the air, is that destroying the planet? What is your argument? Who am I making whatever inhabitable for? All I'm doing is creating problems to be solved later on. And saying that we can't solve those problems is really self-defeating. Now, what else do I have to say about this? I mean, um, I know there's a lot in there, Robert. Well, there is, there is. Um, well, while you're thinking on that, I, okay. I, the other the other thing they kept saying was, well, why aren't you listening to these brilliant scientists? You know, why are you ignoring all these people? They know. They know what to tell you to do. And it was almost that, uh, you know, progressive movement, like, oh, we're going to defer to the experts thing, but now you're ignoring them because you're selfish and mean or just too dumb. Well, and even the, the, the end, what is he? He comes to, I guess, recognize this truth that the uh, professor tells him that, well, when you're faced with calamity, then you will change, right? Because isn't that what he uh, gleaned from 
uh, Klaatu was that uh, they were the same, but when their son was going to explode, they said, well, we better do something to, you know, to, to preserve us. And so it's like, well, why can't we be the same way as that? I thought Faced that was with calamity, we'll change as well. I thought that was a good argument. And, and that, that was played out on a small scale with the kid falling off the bridge. That was his little calamity. Yeah, yeah I didn't buy that. He should have let the kid fall. <laughs> the kid was the worst part of the movie, I thought. Yeah, let him fall. Get that 1951 kid back. But, <laughs> I mean, tell me, you know, he's, he's basically saying that humans are bad because we pollute, like, or we change the environment to suit us better. And we were, you know, like externalities or something. I'm not exactly sure what his argument is because it's a real... It's just a claim that Klaatu makes and then everybody goes along with, but nobody ever challenges them on it. Like, I guarantee you, if you go to Klaatu's planet, they have altered their environment to suit their needs from its original mm -hmm. state. So have they destroyed their environment? No, they've changed it and altered it to better suit them. I 110,000 million percent chance that the world is in a more preferable state for humans than it was a thousand years ago. Because we keep changing it to better suit us. Every time we chop well, a couple trees in the Amazon, that is some guy clearing room to make a farm or what have you. You could argue that that's environmental destruction for the, I don't know, the the birds and the chickens in the in the forest, but it's better for that human being. And either you're on team human or you're not. And I'm on team human. <laughs> I think by extension, it's like if you want us to have more uh, concern for the earth, we already know the answer is to raise our standard of living. The higher our standard of living is, the more we end up uh, extending our concern to uh, issues like that, to preserve the uh, environment and so on and so forth. And so it's, it's like, well, why didn't they just come here with boatloads of gold or diamonds? Well, that would just devalue the gold, then. <laughs> well, yes, I was trying just to say, well, the <laughs> idea is that we just need we just need to be richer. Yeah, well, he, he even mentions that, uh, you know, even all this great alien technology we have wouldn't help you because it's in your nature to be this destructive. Uh, humans are a disease and a plague on the world, as um, Agent Smith or David Attenborough would say. <laughs> What's harmful for one species beneficial for another species. This is all very subjective. This 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 on his ivory tower calling down judgments on humanity. Well, Robert, so I would argue that there is kind of a middle ground between your position of you know, any of this environmental quote unquote destruction benefiting individuals, I think only in the non-cronious sense. Like if it's a government kind of crony deal, then it, it is a misallocation and probably more destructive than it otherwise would have been had individual sovereign property rights been respected. Well, you're talking to an anarcho-capitalist here, Daniel. So of course I'm going to agree with that. But if the argument is this alien coming down from space and saying, you're destroying the planet, First of all, I would say, yeah, well, it's our planet to do with as we will, and we're changing it to benefit us. Of course, we're going to. I mean, if, if bears ruled the world, they would make it more suitable for being a bear. That's just the nature of what the dominant species is going to do. If they had the capacity to do so. Yeah. Well, if they had little thumbs, you know, little thumbs, whatever. <laughs> got to have the, bear. you know, got the big berry paws. They can't really grab onto stuff. Got these, these bear claws. What do to do with the bunny? So... Uh, it just seemed like a whole lot of uh, just a whole lot of yeah judgment from somebody that really had no basis to judge us. Now, what do you think about though? If from his perspective and his very limited perspective, that it would appear as if humans are the ones changing the environment, quote unquote, polluting or destroying the environment, but it's because he doesn't have the context or or more full understanding to even have the argument. You know, so he's just seeing it from a very narrow view. 
from space, from far away, like, hey, there's pollution now, there's whatever. Uh, well, sure. So to him, he's going to see it as, well, you guys are destroying stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, like a, the average, like, you know, environmental lefty guy sees us clear cutting a forest and, you know, this is bad, this is horrible, this is destruction of the environment. And for him, yeah, humans are the biggest changers of our environment. We have the technology, we've got the brains, we've got the ability to do that more than a whale or ants or whatever. But just because we change it from one state to another, because we act purposefully to change things, doesn't mean it's necessarily a terrible thing. I mean, what does he mean by the planet is dying? What does that even mean? It's like the core is going to go cold and it's going to be a lifeless rock? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about like some like oil spilling into the ocean or something. If you look back on the history of the planet, it's gone through way big more catastrophic change than anything humans have ever done. And this is even back when we had 23 years left. <laughs> 12 years left. Although she's gone back on that now. Now, it's, now she says that was a joke. Yeah, she's, she's, yeah, that I, I mean, the argument I think is is it starts right there. It's like you you're saying that this is the case, but you haven't proven anything. You're just you're just assuming that everybody agree. Oh yeah, we've been wrecking the the world, and uh, we don't know how to uh, to preserve it. And what did he say that uh, if we destroy the earth, we destroy humanity? Uh, but if we destroy humanity, then we won't have destroyed the earth, right? That's his uh, his calculus. Right, and it's like. Well, that just doesn't even make sense that, you know, in a, uh, uh, that we would end up destroying the earth, which would destroy us. I mean, as long as we do have property rights and we do have uh, uh, markets, that, that won't happen. So maybe it's really a, a peon against the uh, Green New Deal. Well, yeah, and it's just an ignorance of economics. I mean, if there's something desirable. Or human in action. Yeah, it, it, people will seek to fill it. So there is a, a desire for more, quote, environmentally friendly, whatever. Well, there's people jumping in to provide that service. It's a great you know, marketing tactic to say that we're environmentally friendly. People prefer to support that stuff. Sure. Right, so I got a few it still begs the question of why did he even come here? What was his purpose in coming here? Just to tell us that we were going to get destroyed? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm going to kill you here at the end of the movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I, we decided to clone, clone ourselves into this body that we st stole some DNA from back in 1928. Yeah. Right? Isn't that what they did? Yeah, yeah. Keanu was like this ice climber dude who found an orb and then got knocked out, and they took some of his DNA and then recreated. They rebirthed him on the onto Earth, which I, I actually yes. thought that was kind of cool, having him kind of have to go through that birthing process to be able to adapt to the environment here. Yeah, right. that was kind of a other idea. What did you think about his magic Vaseline? Was uh, I was okay with that. That was his, uh, you know, protective uh, organic spacesuit action. Yeah, but then he had a little vial of it and he rubbed it on his, his chest to cure his wounds and whatnot. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And they Is did it, that in uh, the 51 version too. Yeah, okay. Bert's beeswax or something. Yeah, <laughs> organic Bert's beeswax. It's vegan. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's a couple of notes in here that um, I thought were kind of funny as I wrote them down. Um, I wrote 54 minutes in and I like it so far. So I was halfway through the movie and I was like, I don't, I don't hate <laughs> this movie. And then I wrote uh, 102.47 and it's a new green deal. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, I have WTF written all over the place. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if if I change my perspective a little bit, because uh, you got to remember, this was made in 2008, not 2016 or, or more recent to where, I mean, these people really take this stuff literally. I mean, maybe this sort of paved the path for today in a way, because it's popular culture and it's kind of helping form attitudes. Mm -hmm. But if I look at it as just the MacGuffin and it's a misunderstanding but it propels the story forward. It's 
Klaatu, from his perspective, sees the human race as causing this problem. And then he comes here to deal with the problem because there's so few uh, planets that are habitable. Scarcity makes them valuable. They're rare. And so they have a vested interest in making sure that it remains habitable. So that's that's their perspective coming down here to make sure that because his planet died, right? Because the sun blew up or whatever. And there were very few other planets. So because they had the capacity of homesteaded, the ability to traverse the galaxy and know how many habitable planets there are, they want to maintain this one. It becomes very, very valuable to them. So they're not going to wipe out the entire planet. In fact, they're doing a Noah's Ark thing. They're sucking up the, the um, animals and getting them off Earth so that then when they do destroy the human race, then they can repopulate the Earth with the other animals and other species. Seems very complicated. Doing? Yeah, I thought that was what they were doing they're too. Killing all the humans. Yeah, they're, they're, they're there to take care of the plague, the human plague. But then they're so going to be good. Say that again. We're the bad species and everybody other all the other species are good. From this from the perspective of Klaatu and his, you know, genetically superior alien race. But it, it comes back to an, a misunderstanding, right? It was this narrow perspective and he didn't have any arguments. No, he just had a claim. Right. He had a claim and he didn't engage people in argument because the government people didn't allow him to even get in in front of people to have this engagement, to have this argument. And and I remember when um, the Kathy Bates character, Misery, she's like, his DNA is now government property. No one's going to be studying this. <laughs> that was like an outrageous claim, you know? Like the scientists were saying, this is the most important discovery in humanity. And the government's there saying, no, it's going to be classified top secret. You guys are never going to see this ever again. Right. So just yeah. thwarting human uh, discovery right there. It's an example of what the GOV does for you. Sure, absolutely. So getting to uh, back, to the issue of how they destroyed the humans. They had the little uh, the little bugs, the little uh, <clears throat> whatever they were, locust or something. They were destroying everything, weren't they? They were, yeah. So they, I mean, their technology is terrible. They have the ability to destroy everything as opposed to selectively destroying just humans. Yeah, it really, it should have just been like a plague or something that only affects humans. Yeah. Wanted to just, just kill humans. Yeah. Because otherwise they got to go through the whole arc stuff. Yeah, the 51 version, they're far more selective in pinpointing where they uh, demonstrate their power, right? And they have that that half an hour, like, no electricity thing. Whereas in this one, I guess the day the Earth stood still is more of the awe or the everyone's rapt attention around this event. Like, it sort of loses that whole... Yeah, there was no warning. Yeah, and there was, there was no, no day the Earth stood still, like, moment in this one. Well, there was that time when everybody was looking at the orbs. And wasn't there also a moment that, towards the end when they were kind of like all the power went out or something? Or maybe not. Maybe I'm forgetting. Yeah, something like that did happen. Yeah, maybe that was the time that the Earth stood still in the, in the remake. I don't remember exactly. Okay, so it just wasn't as central as a pivot point as it yeah. was. Like, they were just making their point, showing their power. It was. I think it was just step one in the process. In the process of exterminate. <laughs> yeah. First, turn off the power <laughs> and let go of the bugs. Did you control it delete? Did you delete your cookies? <laughs> Is it turned on? <laughs> um, so I want to ask about the new Gort a little bit, where they um, seal him up and then somehow they magically have this like tunnel to transport him down into the earth. And then they've got this like blast furnace thing where he's in. Yep. Why are they obsessed with penetrating Gort? Like they... The, the government guy is like, we got to get into this Gort. Well, he broke the diamond drill. We got to get in there. We got to. Like, what do they hope to accomplish by drilling a hole in him? Well, isn't he, he's the only physical manifestation that they can, uh, that they can try to deal with. They, I don't think they can do anything about the orbs. 
those seem to be, I guess, visually nebulous and uh, they're unable to do anything about that. But at least with Gort, they have the ability, I, I presume that they moved him once they uh, crated him up, that they moved him to wherever that silo was. Right. And so then it's like, well, if we can figure out how to you know, dismantle him or whatever, then you know that'll solve this problem. Yeah, we could if we could learn about him, we could fight back or something. Okay, well, I guess I guess I'll buy that a little bit. Of course, in the original, they did the you know they tried to break into the spaceship as well. Yeah, that a guy like a with a blowtorch, and he's like, I can't even scratch it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I I was thinking that the Gort would escape like he did in the first one when they had him in that carbonite or whatever it was, you know, the plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the original Gort's able to get out of that and then vaporize a couple of uh, army sentries. But yeah, mm-hmm. the second one, he doesn't even try to escape it. And I wonder if it's because he had been told to stand down and so not even defend himself. But then why does he activate when he's in the blast furnace thing? Yeah, you would think he would have responded to, if he's only programmed to respond to aggression or violence, as Keanu calls it, um, being trapped in those box would seem like an aggression act to me. Yeah. Snapped, is That's an act of aggression. And then taken to this place. And then, yeah, it's only when they fire the blast furnace that he actually activates and turns into like little robo locusts. See, I'm not sure that he serves the same purpose, that he is the mechanism for destroying the earth, right? That's why they brought him. And so then when he turns into the little bugs, that's just the process at work. And it doesn't matter where he is. He could be encased in uh, plastic or in the little silo or anywhere else. Once the, once the process you know, starts, those little bugs are going to you know, chew up everything. Right. So what was it was Keanu when he was in the swamp and he touched the orb, that's what activated it? Or was it the blast furnace that activated Gort to go ahead and kill him humanity? It must have been Keanu, right? That's what I thought it was. That he had made up his yeah. mind and then he activated him and then he changed his mind later on for some reason. When he saves the kid. Saves I the kid. am skeptical about that. Saving the kid that makes no sense. Nothing Maybe it was so he just realizes, oh, yeah, I guess I don't want everyone to die. Is that what's going on? Yeah, he saw the kid change from wanting wanting him dead to liking him. So he, he saw that humans demonstrated the ability to change when they were on the brink on a crisis, falling off the bridge. That's, that's a little crisis. That makes these aliens quite superficial, doesn't it? They're, they're really just Kardashians. They're not deep thinkers, these aliens. <laughs> oh, no, they're dumb. They don't. <laughs> it doesn't change their entire mission. Their entire mission is to kill humanity because humans are killing the earth. At no point in time in this movie do humans demonstrate that they're going to change or that they are capable of living without hurting the earth. So Keanu's change makes no sense. No, he, he's making the change because humans have something else on the flip side that makes them worth preserving well so we kind of sure preserving, though, right if they want to preserve us they could put us in the little orbs too that would yeah. be aggression though dennis <laughs> right they could preserve us by putting in some orbs taking us from outer space but it still doesn't change the fact that uh, us bad evil humans are still gonna kill the earth we're still killing it right according to him right until he has a discussion with somebody uh capable of articulating the argument to the to the negative but uh, see it, it'll be another 10 years before thanos comes up <laughs> is, uh, let's kill half of everybody. So he's only half as evil. Well, I <laughs> people in the in the universe. Yeah, yeah, it's another Thanos argument. Really awesome. I love the humans equals evil argument. Although I, I will say, I mean, this is a, uh, I mean, this is a thread in the most extreme uh, part of the environmental movement that uh, humans are a plague that uh, we aren't, uh, you know, really part of the natural system, and that it would be good to get rid of humans. 
but it, but it's always been a real minority view, and it's, it really shocks me that it shows up as sort of the basic premise for this movie. Well, and if you actually believe it, it always struck me as very hypocritical or disingenuous, because if you actually did believe that, there's a real easy way to reduce your carbon imprint, killing yourself. And none of these yeah. people ever do that. They just complain about all of the other humans, because they're the woke ones that realize how bad and evil humans are, so they got to stay alive to make sure they spread the word about how evil humans are. But if they really did believe it, they could just take the leap and ax themselves and, you know. Not that we're advocating that. Well, the guy in New York, do you remember the guy in, like, um, New York um, Central Park that actually killed himself, like, set himself on fire, saying that, you know, there's going to be one less human destroying the earth. I mean, there's one guy so far in the history of humans <laughs> through with their dumb argument. Yes. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Man. And uh, we do have a comment in the chat. He says, you know how old Ferngully is? I don't think the environmentalist attitude is new. And I agree. Um, I'm just saying that in more present day, it seems to be more in your face versus 10 years ago or whenever this movie was made. But it probably goes back to the 60s, right? When uh, Silent Spring came out and they started really pushing this narrative. And now, of course, it's all over the government schools for the government day camp uh, indoctrination centers for kids pushing this kind of stuff. So everyone thinks that the, the world's going to end, you know, like right around the corner. Yeah. I mean, you had Al Gore in what, 2001? Is that movie that came out? And he was saying that we're all going to be dead in 15 years or whatever, or at least that the sea levels are going to, it was all going to be, it was all going to be too late or whatever if we didn't take immediate action and give him all the carbon credits or whatever. Yeah. We keep passing that point where the point of no return and it's like, well, then give up already. <laughs> right. Just let us live our lives then. Make the best of it, everyone. Yeah. All right. Uh, my one last note on the 2008 version is um, the watch is not working at the end. And I think that is a, um, a subtle nod back to the original where the watch was working when it shouldn't have been in the 1951 version. Fair enough. I mean, this movie does nod back to the 51 version. And like there's a, there's a professor, what's his name in both versions, right? Barnhart. Barnhart, yeah. That's fun. It's too bad that they completely bastardized <laughs> the entire first movie. Yeah, I like Barnhart in the first one. I didn't like him so much in this one, even though John Cleese is great. <laughs> and He's John Wick does have to erase the blackboard in both movies. Yeah, right. But no, Barnhart. John Cleese and everybody, every other human, including John Cleese, are just, whatever you say is true, alien guy. Oh, did you catch his, uh, what he got his Nobel Prize in? Yeah, it's... Um... Biological altruism. What is that? <laughs> I, I never heard of any such thing, but I thought it was funny because it's like, oh, well, he's the guy that needs to talk to Klaatu. The biological altruist. Yeah. It's I like, have a better solution instead of killing everybody. <laughs> All right. Any last notes before we get into final summary and review? I think uh, we're uh, we're well into extra, extra length here. Yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, I've, I think I've gone through all my notes. All right. Sounds good. Well, Robert, why don't you uh, lead us off with final summary review? Uh, give us a rating on both films. And uh, I don't know, you could maybe do an average at the end for the overall concept. Mm. Or is that yeah, okay. I mean, well, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi fan and I like movies that have claims, make, make, you know, make statements. And the first movie, and he came out and said that the problem is aggression. I loved that. that you, you don't get that anywhere else. I mean, you see it and people actively, you know, act it out. The good guys are always reacting to the bad guys doing something, and that's why they're justified in killing them at the end or whatever. But you don't get people, like, talking about it, saying, no, it's it's aggression. That's the case. That's the problem. That's that's why you're justified in doing what you do. So that was that was a lot of fun. Um, the acting was all pretty good. It's a little bit hokey in the original, but that's just, like, the way things were at the time. I don't understand. If that's how, is that how kids really acted 
in the 50s. Is oh. it Gene Wally? Gee, gee, Beef. Gosh, golly, Dad. Anyway, uh, I, I thought it was fun and charming. I don't know if it's how accurate it was, but whatever. Um, yeah, the, the uh, special effects, you know, are you know what they are for the time. But the t- the story itself is, is is fairly timeless. I enjoyed it way more than the remake. Even if you know the remake, you know, adds it's it's definitely definitely done in a more a different style, um, more of a modern style of a movie. But I okay, I understand. Like I said, I understand why they changed it from Cold War nuclear scare to environmental destruction because you know the Cold War nuclear scare wouldn't really play very well now. But I really don't like this. Everybody knows humans are bad. Everybody knows we're destroying the Earth. So, and go. I, I think that's just really lazy. And that's just like obvious pandering to your political message, your political ideology or whatever. It's, um, you don't do anything to actually argue the point and you don't do it in any kind of an interesting way. And it kind of perverts the original in the sense that Gort is supposed to be this guy that reacts to aggression. But now you're changing it to Gort reacting to pollution, which he should have done, but he didn't. He still reacted to aggression. So he, like, you're right. He turned more into like a bodyguard. Yeah, he's Kevin Costner to uh, his Whitney Houston. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so the movie, the, the remake just didn't play well for me at all. Um, it's just garbage. Just absolutely garbage. All the humans in it are garbage people. Fight back. Show some spine. Um, so I'll give the first movie like an eight. And this movie, like a four, the, the remake of four. I, 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 I wish they had picked something else than, than humans are bad, environmental destruction, blah, 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 blanket statements, vague, vague arguments, just lazy garbage. All right, Dr. Foster, we'll use your honorific now since we're <laughs> closing in our formal, formal respect here. Well, uh, I just, uh, I liked what everybody had to say about the, these two movies. The, the first one, uh, whenever I first saw it, I don't know, must have been the early 1960s, probably as a kid, uh, has always stuck with me. And and uh, even though it's old technology, uh, it's still very well done. And uh, today it would be great to remake it, but to keep the same uh, premise. But you know, so much of uh, of that is hard to hard to do. So I give it a uh, I'll give it a 10 out of 10. In fact, uh, I don't know if I noted earlier. The American Film Institute rates this as number five on the top ten science fiction movies uh, of all time. So, so they have uh, again the critics kind of liked it a lot. And the uh, the other one because it was just so awful. And yeah, okay, there's maybe a, a, a monetary interest in dealing with more topical uh, issues like uh, the environment. I think they could have done the same premise as the first movie and it would have been successful. I mean, as I mentioned before, I was very excited when it came out and totally disappointed when I left the, uh, the theater. So, but the special effects are cool. So I'll give it two stars for special effects and terrible story. Those are fantastic scores. I love them. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big spread. Huge spread. Suck it, Keanu. <laughs> 10 versus two. All right. Well, you know, I I think we had a really good discussion on this, and I enjoyed actually both movies. I feel like they actually complement each other in certain respects because the first one, the issues I had with that was the the disproportionality and the um, willingness to live under an authoritarian, totalitarian dictatorship almost of if anyone steps out of line, you're going to be annihilated with the nuclear option. Um, I felt like that constrains humanity and the free will and the ability to live a full life granted um violence and and aggression 
are net negatives. They should not be tolerated, but I think it needs to be uh, handled on a local level. And so I think we hit, hit that on the head very early on when we were talking about being armed and having individual responsibility and having market forces provide remedies for services that are needed for like uh, defense services and security. Um, Robert Murphy has a great uh, short book called Chaos Theory that kind of gets into a hypothetical of how something might, like that might work and how it would be better than the current system where the warlords actually have taken over. Um, so the original movie, I'm going to go with a nine. I, I, I thought it was really good. It is a classic movie. I had never seen it before. And so, uh, Dennis, thank you for suggesting this one. And also thank you for saying that we need to watch both of them because in watching the second one, I actually bought into the story. I was riveted uh, through the first half of it, actually. Um, but when they get into the, the argument of uh, the Chinese guy talking to Neo and he's like, hey, yeah, they're bad and they're destroying stuff. But there's also this other side of them. There's this humanity. And I like that. I like that that is um, that that it's acknowledging that there are individuals and there's free will and that they're not um, living under this uh, surveillance state where they're going to be destroyed if anyone steps out of line. And so for me, the new one actually works pretty well. I just treat the watermelon message as the MacGuffin to keep the story going, to give it something that is a big enough threat that from the perspective of a very distant outsider, they would they would look at us and see a very narrow view of what's going on and come to the conclusion that the humans are the problem. Now, if they were not treated so poorly upon their arrival by the governments uh, of the United States, then perhaps they could have had a dialogue and be like, no, 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 you see, we're actually making it more habitable for humans. And you know, the real problem is the government's causing all this pollution. And if we respected property rights and had innovation and technology and, and free markets, we would actually solve for these problems then that would result in a much better resolution. And so I think that's something that we can work towards uh, in present day, not just in a fantasy sci-fi movie. So the second one, I'm going to give it an eight. I love <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so Robert, suck it. Heresy, fight me. <laughs> suck it, Daniel. I will fight right. you. I will fight you. So this has been our extra long episode on uh, the day the earth stood still. Two uh, two movies all wrapped up in one. Next week, Robert and I are going to do a Memorial Day episode talking about that great American hero, John Rambo. And we're going to do the <laughs> yeah, baby. original Rambo, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Hey. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. And um, I think we've actually got a little bit of time before we need to record that one. So I might just go on a little Rambo binge and uh, Ooh, yeah. down a hind helicopter with an arrow. Why wouldn't you? Like a true man. But uh, I, I want to focus the discussion on the first one because I think it's going to have plenty to chew on. So join us next week for Rambo First Blood. That's the official title, right? Yeah, First Blood. Yeah. And then, and then I think, like, yeah, then First Blood Part Two. I forget. No, it's just maybe just Jan. And then Rambo. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Where the Afghanis are the good guys, I think. Yeah, the, the Mujahideen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll refresh ourselves on that and then we'll record that one. So, uh, Dennis. Dr. Foster, thank you so much for being our guest. Um, you actually wrote an article on your blog about the day the earth stood still, so we will put that on the show notes page. They can be found at lastnighters.com slash 72. Um, do you have any um, blogs or websites or anything that you want to share with the audience um, before we say goodnight? Uh, I do have a blog site. It's called Kaibab Journal, but I haven't really kept up with the uh, the regular entries in that. Uh, if you're interested in hiking the Grand Canyon, on the other hand, I have a lot of uh, Grand Canyon hiking stuff up there. 
All right. Very good. Well, we'll post that down on the show notes page. And uh, thank you guys very much for joining us. This can also be found on the Launchpad Media. Give us uh, ratings on iTunes and subscribes on the old YouTubes. Help us out. And you can also check it out at Patreon, lastnighters.com slash Patreon, where we will have our Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is bonus content for Patreon people. And we will have a little bit of that uh, going on tonight after we end the show. So thank you guys and good night from last night. All right, so it's that show within a show. We're still technically live and recording for the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 129. Uh, Dr. Foster, um, I feel weird calling you that because I've been talking. <laughs> it it feels weird here. hearing people say that too, <laughs> quite yeah. frankly. So we're in the Rothbard Roundtable group together doing the economics uh, discussions. It's supposed to be every week, but uh, we've been doing the one-year course over the course of almost three years now. Um, but one of the things that, without seeing the movie, my first thought when you brought up this, uh, the day of the earth sits still, I was like, oh, it's like the evenly rotating economy. <laughs> and so maybe that, you know, it's just a little bonus stuff here for actual anarchy listeners. Um, can we talk about that and maybe how in pop popular economics, like just the man on the street, they would think of the evenly rotating, rotating economy almost as like a perfect competition type model. It's like a misunderstanding of what the intention of the concept is. As applied to this movie? Uh, just well, as the concept. Just uh, in and of itself. Well, it is a, uh, well, it's an abstraction uh, from reality. And the purpose uh, that Mises says that he developed it was to illustrate the importance of entrepreneurship. And I think also uh, the issues of uh, uncertainty, right? So entrepreneurship and uncertainty are gone from the evenly rotating economy. You don't have to think about anything. Uh, we're just all a bunch of gorts, really. Uh, we buy the same things all the time. We have the same income all the time. We have the same taste and preferences continuously, uh, which, of course, is not the way the real world works. But the idea is that when you construct this uh, abstraction where everything just repeats itself uh, uh, forever, then you understand the importance of entrepreneurship in terms of economic growth and development. That's that's kind of how I would see it. Right. So it's more of a thought exercise in a way to kind of isolate thought. Right. Because if, if everything is happening the same, then there's no free will. There's no risk. There's perfect knowledge. Everyone's going to continue to do the same thing no matter what. Um, and I, I feel like people think of that um, from like a Keynesian perspective, like that, that, you know, consumers drive the economy with consumer spending. And it, it also ties into the concepts of perfect competition where there's perfect knowledge, many small firms, uh, I'm sort of conflating two concepts together that maybe don't really technically blend, but I'm also trying to per give it from a lay person's perspective. You know, like how is how would somebody man on the street view these concepts uh, incorrectly? Well, the question is how to use it. I, I think that the extension I think of in terms of the evenly rotating economy, again, if you just go back to thinking, well, it demonstrates the importance of entrepreneurship. Well, then what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the state should do uh, as little as possible to interfere with that process, right? So it tells you a lot about tax policy and uh, all these other things, these Green New Deals and all these other policies that basically get in the way of entrepreneurship. Uh, well, that's the way to slow down an economy. That's the way to stagnate an economy and perhaps even in the ultimate drive it into, uh, into an evenly rotating economy, right? You might think of that as sort of the ultimate sort of... Uh, uh, communist uh, 
society where you don't have to think about anything because everything is just repeated day after day after day. So that would be like those planned societies like uh, the Venus Project, um, where like everything is is like machine driven or artificial intelligence and there's no more want or scarcity, post-scarcity society. You know, it's and it's and it's like even more restrictive than that because because the idea is that you don't have any decisions to make. You don't. You don't. You just you you act on whatever the plan is. It's the it's the forever plan. Not just the same thing. The forever plan. This sounds like <laughs> a, a Wally situation, like where all the people are just fat and just sitting around watching TV. Well, they still make decisions, so it's even worse than that. I mean, oh geez, it, it really is. Uh, I was trying to think of a of an example. I mean, it's you might think of it more like the Matrix in a real world sense that those human bodies didn't have any decisions to make, even though they thought they did in the Matrix world, right? Yeah, in the real in the real world, they were just batteries. That's right. In the pods, yeah. So, so that that would be the evenly rotating economy as the Matrix world. All right, another Keanu reference. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can uh, end the actual Anarchy podcast there and get into some Kathleen Turner overdrives. So this has been episode 129. Again, our guest was Dennis Foster. So thank you so much for being our guest for this. And uh, we're going to be coming at you with Rambo next week, everyone. Robert, final word. Yeah, baby. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Dennis. You've been a fantastic guest. Thanks for suggesting these fantastic films to talk about. Um, Thanks for having me. You and I are right. Daniel was wrong once again. (laughs) But, you know, nobody's perfect. So we still love the guy. Uh, Thank you. I can feel the love. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good night. We're going to do some Kathy Turner Overdrive. The Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the Chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.